body parts, human body parts, began turning up around town. An unusual and alarming crime. Numerous gruesome discoveries. Found several pieces out here, uh, an extremity. We found the, the, the head. It was very obvious it was human parts. But who was the victim? We won't know until we hopefully catch up to our killer. Maybe a demon possessed that is uh, doing this these things. It couldn't, uh, it couldn't be any normal person. And the path to the killer was paved with an unprecedented collaboration between police and the local media. We've never had a request like that again. <laughs> none before, none since. The case of a killed and dismembered woman and the extraordinary move in the search for the murderer in this episode of Borderland Crimes. There's a personal reason for profiling this case. I was a teen in the 1990s, growing up here in El Paso, Texas. For me, it was relatively boring. Not much to do, not much happening. But this act of violence in particular that dominated news headlines for weeks in 1995 left a lasting impression on me. One of those you cannot unsee what you've seen moments it's because the way it was solved ended up showing the entire city a decapitated head of a murder victim on the evening news. No doubt about it, this is bizarre. About 8.30 this morning, a passerby along Lee Trevino found the pieces of several human limbs lying near the road. There was some amazement. Uh, things like this don't happen in El Paso was kind of the attitude. Uh, but here we were faced with the hard evidence that things like that do happen in El Paso. Gary Warner was the main anchor for ABC7 from 1973 until his retirement in 2008. Warner is talking about the February 1995 discovery of human body parts scattered across five different parts of town found by passersby over a four-day period. Police say best guess right now, the body parts are those of a middle-aged woman. But based on what they found, that's only an assumption. Police somehow concluded that they were the, from the same victim, and then obviously probably by the same killer. But based on what they had, the evidence they, they had recovered from the various scenes, they were kind of at a dead end, and uh, they, they couldn't make that final connection or get that break in the case that they needed to find out who was doing this and who the victim was. It all started with one macabre discovery on the morning of Friday, February 17, 1995. A call to police alerted officers to an irrigation ditch running alongside Lee Trevino Drive in East El Paso. I was in my office, one of my supervisors, uh, Sergeant Dwayne Johnson, came over to me and he said, start over to Lee Trevino and Highland. Apparently they found some uh, uh, body parts there, but he goes, I, I think they're going to be like cow parts or animal parts. That's retired detective Turi Ruiz. If you occasionally hear birds chirping, dogs barking, or cars driving by, 
It's because we recorded this interview with Ruiz just weeks after the city of El Paso announced its first case of COVID-19 in the spring of 2020, and after city and county leaders had instituted a social distancing requirement. To be safe, we recorded this interview in Ruiz's front yard to avoid going into his house where his family was isolating. In 1995, Ruiz was relatively new to the El Paso Police Department's homicide unit, known as Crimes Against Persons. I headed out there. Uh, I met with the police officers there, and I looked at the parts. I said, no, these are human parts. Ruiz described to me what he saw. What I remember was like a a knee, a thigh, a hand, and uh, a a foot or maybe both feet. It it wasn't like the torso or any main part of the body, just like leg parts. They were laying there on the side of the road on the dirt uh, part of it. And uh, like I said, it was just those parts and they appeared to have been spray painted. Ruiz said the body parts were painted primer gray and blue. According to the police report that ABC7 obtained through an open records request, the hand was missing fingertips. And the woman who made the discovery told police she and her husband were driving by the ditch when she noticed what she thought was a foot. They circled back to double check because she thought it was fake. It wasn't. The entire scenario was eye-opening to the new detective. I said, wow, that, that was something new to me. I had never seen anything like that. Uh, I, I was kind of young still in the homicide unit. I had about, probably about a year and a half on. And um, it, all the cases I had gone to prior to that, it was a complete victim, you know. And that was pretty shocking to me there, uh, seeing uh, chopped up parts of a human being. News reporters quickly got on the story. Police this morning pulled out all the stops looking for the rest of the corpse, including a helicopter flyover. In the event that there are the parts in the area, this is a quick way to search. Of course, a canine unit using using their their ability to smell may be able to find the other parts of the body. But those body parts, a knee, feet, an elbow, a hand missing its fingertips, and part of a thigh were all police found at the scene. Not even blood or a sign of a struggle. Investigators will also continue their effort to unravel the bizarre circumstances of the death. This is a unique case, anything like this. We've had them before, but uh, anytime we run into this, it's, 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 it's gruesome, no doubt about it. El Paso Police Lieutenant Paul Saucedo led the investigation. You'll hear his voice throughout this podcast. So investigators didn't know who this person was, how he or she died, or even where the murder happened. The first step, Ruiz said, was to look through missing persons files. You're looking for, gosh, anyone, anything. You can't even tell an age, right, of a victim. No, it's pretty much uh, going fishing without bait. You're just throwing a hook in there, hoping something comes up. That's, That's about it. But they weren't looking long before police were called to another intersection in East El Paso, Lomaland Drive and Burnham Road, exactly a mile west from the first spot. Ruiz remembers the call he got from 911 dispatch to go to the scene. The dispatcher uh, actually scared me because she tells me over the phone, they found a head, an arm, and two hands, and I already had one hand. <laughs> 
So, so I was like, what? <laughs> she, that's where we're getting the information. So I was like, oh my God, you know, do, do we have a serial killer here? Because now we have three hands, if that was true. When I got to the crime scene, I, I verified that there was one hand, uh, an arm, and a head. A human head. Now, they have the victim's sex, a woman. It looked like she had a missing tooth, what I recall. It looks like she had some uh, minor uh, facial trauma. That, that looked like it was a post-mortem trauma. In other words, maybe when uh, they were trying to dismember the body. The face was all spray-painted again, uh, same colors. The discovery of the head should help police at least ID the victim, who they believe to be a light-complected female in her early 30s. As for the hand police found, it was apparently dismembered in the same fashion as the hand found on Friday. Well, we found another hand that also had the fingertips cut off. Police say the woman's head was found close to the street, indicating it was most likely dropped off there sometime after midnight. Currently, police have few clues in the case. Their next clue may come with their next find. The fear that there was more than one victim seemed to grip the city, and that theory made its way into news reports. Now, since the fingertips were cut off both hands, there's speculation that it might be a way that the murderer is marking his victims. Now, rumors are swarming throughout this case. We've even heard mention of a possible serial killer. I talked to a few people out here, and one person wonders, like others, if maybe another Jeffrey Dahmer might be on the loose. Maybe a demon possessed that is uh, doing this, these things. It couldn't, uh, it couldn't be any no normal person. Now, police say they are very far from drawing any such conclusion. Ruiz, who has a remarkable recall for details, seems to dismiss the theory now. We felt very confident that it was one victim at that point with what we had. The cuts looked similar if you just look at them uh, with the naked eye. Uh, the method, the, the body, and the colors that were being used were very consistent. Uh, so we felt confident that we had one victim at this point. So in 24 hours, police had nearly 10 body parts, including a head, but still no idea who she was. And the killer was still out there. Back at that time, we had no access to computer system with the palm prints. So... The palm prints were still there, but the fingertips were gone, so we had no. Uh, we did try dental records, but without knowing who the victim is, we have really nowhere to start asking for dental records. We would actually have to go to every single doctor in this city uh, to start pulling uh, records of all their patients, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a task that won't be done right now. As police once again try to figure out who their victim is, a third discovery. It came later that night, 30 miles north of the first two sites near El Paso in Chaparral, a small community that sits along the Texas-New Mexico border. According to the police report, a deputy with the Doniana County Sheriff's Office was driving home to Chaparral when he noticed a dolly cart, like the ones used to move heavy boxes, left along the side of the road. He pulled over to investigate and approached the dolly. He noticed something mounted on top of it. The officer touched it. It felt like a body, according to the police report. The sheriff of Doniana County at the time describes it to the news reporter. This thing was spray painted. It also was typed with uh, electrical cord. 
orange in color, a leather belt, and basically was spray painted with a greenish type spray paint, silver paint. It was wrapped in an army type, uh, type uh, blanket. Under the blanket, New Mexico authorities found the nude torso of a woman. They knew because of news coverage that we were working a case here in El Paso with, uh, with um, some body parts. So they called us as a courtesy to see if it was tied in in one way or another. So we went out there, we assessed uh, that crime scene, the third crime scene that we had, and uh, we made a determination uh, that it appeared to be our torso from our victim parts that we have located here. So um, through the higher-ups, we were able to coordinate the release of the torso immediately to uh, Texas jurisdiction, and uh, we took over the investigation. Police believe the murderer intentionally placed the body here, which is just a few feet from the roadway, because he or she wanted the torso to be found. Hours later, Sunday afternoon, a fourth find. According to the police report, a member of the El Paso Fire Department was walking along Acer Street, which is more than two miles northwest from where a majority of the body parts were found, and came across a cardboard beer box. When he turned it over, he found dried blood, clumps of hair, and gray paint. He also found what's described as meaty tissue. Turns out, the fire department employee had been on the scene when the first group of body parts was found and had a hunch this discovery was related. He called 911. The flesh in there turned out to be human flesh, which was consistent to the body parts we had already found and the box was also spray painted too, mm -hmm. consistent to the body parts. As police scrambled to make sense of the evidence, a fifth discovery. Monday, February 20th, a father-daughter cleaning crew was collecting trash from a shopping center in central El Paso at the intersection of Montana Avenue and Trowbridge Drive, somewhat of a midpoint between the first three discovery sites. While dumping out a trash bin, they spotted a sandwich bag containing fingertips. She immediately said, it's probably that person they've been finding has been cut up. So I called police. We went out there, secured the area, and uh, we processed and collected the fingers. Police believe the fingertips have been here since Saturday and say that other than a few pieces still missing, they've pretty much collected the whole body. It's, it's, it's going to be a very complex, complex case. Just, just as an example, the autopsy yesterday and trying to piece these things together took over eight hours. And after literally piecing the woman's body together, a coroner determined the victim died of several gunshot wounds to the right chest area from what appears to be a small caliber handgun. A cause of death, but no identity. The victim's prints were not on file on our criminal databases. So that avenue was shut down for us. We could not, we could not figure that out. Um, we were not getting any uh, solid leads from anybody calling in saying, hey, my neighbor's missing, my loved one is missing. We weren't getting anything like that. We knew that without identifying our victim, it was going to be an uphill battle trying to solve this murder. So uh, we looked at everything, and that was probably one of our last-ditch efforts to identify our victim. The last-ditch effort to identify the victim was an uncommon form of police work.
five crime scenes scattered across El Paso, more than 20 body parts of an unidentified woman dumped, left out in the open for people to find as they went about their daily business. We were about uh, five or six days deep into the investigation, but still no solid leads as to who our victim was. And that means no lead on the murderer either. Retired El Paso police detective Turi Ruiz told me that's when the investigative team approached the department's public information office with a proposal. Our objective is to get the, the, the face of the head out there so people can see it and hopefully we can start getting some phone calls. The easiest way to show the woman's face to as many people as possible was to display it on television. Retired ABC7 News anchor Gary Warner explains what police wanted to do with help from TV stations. They did have the severed head. And they came up with the idea of cosmetically preparing the head for a photograph and asking the news media to put it on the air. We never would have done that uh, without a, a direct police request, and we got it. Walk me through what that was like when the police department approached the newsroom with this highly unusual and unprecedented request to broadcast a dead woman's severed head on television. We, we had to meet some conditions. Uh, first would be the one that we would use today in any story that contains graphic material, and that is we want to warn the viewers before we show you what we're going to show you, that we're going to show you something you don't like. So we knew we'd have that disclaimer at the beginning. We saw the picture before we put it on the air. It was not grotesque. It, it kind of looked like a, a still picture of a, of a sculpture. And I was wondering how much repair work they had actually done on it. It, it looked quite natural. The paint had been washed off. Uh, the face, you can see the obvious injuries around the lip and some of the facial injuries. The hair, they, they didn't take their time to comb it out. They just try to make it look as neat as possible. And then they draped a, um, a, like a blue blanket from about the chin down, all right? And then they put it on one of the autopsy tables and they took several photos of that. And then uh, when they brought those photos, we picked the one that had the best uh, look on it, per se. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we told our, our PIO to go ahead and uh, provide the media so they can put it out there for us. On February 20th, 1995, two days after the woman's head was found, residents watching the 6 and 10 o'clock newscasts on ABC7 and other local news outlets got a look at her face. Here's how it played out on air. Police released photographs of the victim's face. We should warn you, this video may be upsetting to some viewers, but police say it's important to tracking down the identity. She's described as a white female with light complexion, blue eyes, brown hair, and freckles. Between 30 and 40 years old, weighs about 135 pounds, and is about 5 feet 2 inches tall. 
There was an intense discussion in the ABC7 newsroom as to how to approach the story, how to balance viewers' sensitivities with the need to help police catch a killer. And as sometimes happens, not everything went according to plan. Warner recalls a moment of panic. Unfortunately, the, one, the person who was editing for an afternoon news brief to promote the six o'clock news didn't get the, the entire message. He got the message that we were going to use it on the six o'clock news. And he therefore concluded it would be okay to use it in the, I think it was a two o'clock news brief. And it ran briefly and without any, any very much of warning at all, for a few seconds it was up on the air at two o'clock and I immediately ran to the control room to make sure that didn't happen again that it was not to be used until the six o'clock newscast under those conditions that we had set out. But either way, everyone was now seeing the woman's face, a real severed human head on TV. I remember that moment. I was 13 at the time, standing in the family living room, unable to look away from the television screen, showing a woman whose head was propped up on a blue cloth with her dark blonde hair spilling around her face, her blue eyes slightly open and staring blankly off to something I couldn't see. I remember feeling shocked I was seeing the face of a severed head. Looking back, I realized this was a moment that innocence was lost for me, for other El Pasoans who were watching who had not been exposed to this level of violence and brutality. This was death. And this was someone's daughter, someone's sister, someone's friend. The impact of this moment has been long-lasting. In fact, a coworker tells me the decision to show the decapitated head on the news was the topic of discussion in his journalistic ethics class 20 years after the crime in 2015 and at Texas Christian University, more than 600 miles away in Fort Worth. The detectives working the case were standing by at police headquarters waiting to take calls and hopefully learn something that could break open the case. Ruiz said they had no luck after the 6 p.m. newscast. I'm going to say that maybe we got two or three calls, and we think it's the lady that stands at the corner asking panhandling and stuff like that, but nothing solid at the time. So we all kept our fingers crossed for the 10 o'clock news. And uh, 10 o'clock came around, they aired it, and shortly uh, after airing the story, um, we started getting numerous calls, and there was one name that was being repetitive from numerous callers. And it wasn't just like one or two callers, it was numerous callers, I can't tell the amount. But there are, that looks like Susie Hahn Bradley, it looks like Susie Hahn Bradley. A friend of Susie Hahn Bradley's actually went to the police station to make a statement. Here's what she told Ruiz on Monday, February 20th, 1995. I first heard about the dismembered body on Friday while watching the local news. I kept hearing about the murder the next several days. Today I was watching the six o'clock news when they showed the picture of the victim. Upon seeing the picture, I recognized the picture as that of a friend, 
Susie Hahn that I've known for about six years, I decided to call Susie at her home. I called her home and Pat Bradley answered the phone. With that information, detectives were able to confirm that Susie was married to a man named James Patrick Bradley. This friend referred to James Patrick Bradley as Pat. I spoke to Pat for several minutes and then I asked him to let me speak with Susie. Pat told me that Susie had left to Ridoso, New Mexico on Wednesday or Thursday on a painting trip with some friends. Pat also told me that she was overdue from her trip and that he was concerned. Pat told me that he had already called Susie's father and mother and they told him that it was normal of Susie to be late. After talking to Pat, I was determined to watch the 10 o'clock news and call someone that also knew Susie. In her statement, she told her friend to put the TV on ABC7. Did he know who the lady was? He told me that it was Susie Hahn. We decided to drive down to the local police station and report it to police. We dug through our reports through our 911 call center and nobody had called at least saying they were James Patrick Bradley or from that address saying, hey, my loved one is missing. So we felt it was a good lead too. Uh, he is the husband of the victim and it's very important to talk to the other half to figure out what's going on. In the early morning hours after the woman's head was displayed on the evening news, Detective Ruiz and another detective paid a visit to the Bradley house, which, by the way, happens to be less than a quarter mile from where the woman's fingertips were found in the trash can at a shopping center. We knocked on the door, and um, he answered the door. Wow. And, and, and um, we identified ourselves. We had uniformed police officers behind us, and uh, we identified ourselves, and I remember these words... Uh, uh, like they just spoke to me right now minutes ago. Uh, after identifying ourselves, he looks at her and she says, I was just about to call and report my wife missing. And in my mind, I said, no problem, sir, we found her. But I didn't say that out loud. I just said that in my head. So what uh, did you say? I, I just said, great, we need to talk to you about your wife because we're concerned about her well-being. And, uh, and then he says, what's going on? So my partner... He says, uh, we, your wife was a victim of a murder. Ruiz said when Bradley heard the news, he told detectives he needed to sit down. He had a back issue and needed a wheelchair. Detectives helped him into a chair and asked if he would go with them to police headquarters for an interview. Ruiz told me what else he remembered about that night. There was a some kind of a Chrysler car parked in his driveway. And um, and as we're leaving, I remember I got my flashlight. I just shined the light in there. Uh, curiosity, that's part of our job. We're curious about everything. And as I shined my light in there, I saw a bunch of pecans inside the car. So I just made a mental note of that. Ruiz made a mental note because it wasn't the first time he had seen pecan shells pertaining to the investigation into this murder. Ruiz told me there were pecan shells at the first two sites where her body parts were found. We went ahead and collected them because they were out of place. They didn't mean anything. When uh, the second day came around and we found pecan shells there, I said, there's a tie-in here. 
there's a tie-in somehow. There's going to be a tie-in here. So we collect those as evidence also. You don't find pecan shells scattered all over town like that. In my mind, I didn't know what I had yet, but I knew that somehow they were going to tie into my crime. How the dismembered body, a man in a wheelchair, and pecan shells helped them crack the case. Four days after the first discovery of a woman's body parts, police had their first real lead on who the victim was and who murdered her. The big break came after police and local TV news outlets collaborated to display the woman's decapitated head on television in the hopes of finding someone who could help them identify her. And it worked. The woman was Susie Hahn Bradley. And as it turned out, Several people who were watching recognized the woman and identified her to police, and that led her to James Patrick Bradley, her husband. In the early morning on Tuesday, February 21, 1995, police detectives took James Patrick Bradley to police headquarters to talk to him about what happened to Susie. We took him in, we explained to him what we had. Uh, we asked him if he'd seen the news. He said, yes, but I wasn't too concerned <laughs> about, about what uh, we were finding throughout El Paso. And, um, and then we went into, why hadn't you reported your wife missing? Do you know where she's at? And his story was that uh, she was to have gone up to the Rigdos area to go canvas painting. She used to like to do canvas painting uh, with, uh, uh, out in the nature out there. And, and he said uh, she was due to come back which would be consistent to the day that we started finding her body parts, but she hasn't shown up. But he also added, she's run late before a couple of days. And, you know, we left it at that. Ruiz said they ended up talking to Bradley a long time, maybe up to 10 hours, including breaks for food, cigarettes, and other things. Ruiz said Bradley's story morphed away from a husband concerned about his wife late coming home from an out-of-town trip to the truth. At one point, he uh, went ahead and uh, admitted that he had shot and uh, killed his wife and then cut her up and threw her all over town. My name is James Patrick Bradley. His confession is detailed in police documents. Here's what detectives took down. It's pretty gory. When she opened the bathroom door, I shot her six times on her right side. She went down and I knew she was dead. I got up and walked with my walker up to her and this is when I knew she was dead. I could see six punctures on her chest. I tried to get her into the pickup truck which I had parked up against the front door but with my back problem I could not lift her into the pickup. I dragged her back into the music room and that's when I put a pan under each leg and took an axe and I first chopped off her legs. I put a garbage bag under her legs and they were not even bleeding. I then put a pan under her hands and used the axe to cut those off. I then put a garbage bag under that and put a pan under that and uh, cut the arms off with an axe. 
I then put the pan under her right arm and cut that off with an axe. I then put a pan under her head and cut it off with an axe. Also in the confession, Bradley detailed how he dropped off random spray-painted body parts at different spots around town in the days following the murder. How do you go from, oh, I was going to report my wife missing to finally getting a confession? What changed? It's just uh, the stories they tell you in this case. uh, Some of the information he was given was not consistent. His trying to justify why he didn't do things or he did things just wasn't there. Uh, So we just keep pushing at that point. Uh, We don't play good cop, bad cop. We just uh, note inconsistencies that we have for what we have physical evidence and for what the person is telling us. As for the gruesome method of disposal, Ruiz believed it, given Bradley's back condition. He could still walk. He um, he had difficulties, but lifting and all that, uh, he had did have a back uh, uh, injury that he had surgery on, but uh, he had limitations. So instead of being able to pick up, and I don't know what her weight was back then, but let's just say 150 pounds, whatever, picking up 150 pounds of dead weight versus picking up three, four, five, six pounds of body parts is a lot easier. That would explain putting the main torso on a dolly, strapping it up so he could be able to uh, lift it and put it into the back of his uh, pickup truck that he had. That, mm-hmm. that makes perfectly good sense. Police searched the Bradley home, looking for evidence of the murder and dismemberment. Officers videotaped the house, documenting a cluttered converted garage filled with musical instruments, radio equipment, and plenty of boxes and books. It's behind a stack of some of those books and boxes where officers say they found five empty shell casings. Prosecutors believe that's where Bradley shot his 34-year-old wife, Susie, before chopping her body into 21 pieces. Detectives accused Bradley of covering evidence of the murder. According to the ABC7 archive, officers found one of Susie's teeth inside a toilet bowl and some blood-soaked carpet. And... Another detail stuck with Ruiz. In, in the bathroom uh, wall, uh, we actually found the strikes from the bullets that went through the body. He actually uh, had covered them with toothpaste, <laughs> the tile. He took the time to put white toothpaste in that cover. So they weren't uh, obviously evident at first until you got a closer look at the tile. Ruiz said investigators also found the tools he used to dismember the body, just where Bradley told him they would be, in a makeshift shed behind the main house. He claimed that uh, he had a couple of different size axes there, uh, axes uh, uh, in, in his, in his uh, storage shed there that he claimed he used. And he actually said he tried to use uh, one of those like pruning saws, those electric pruning saws. But it, it, he goes, it, it just would not cut correctly, so I had to put that aside. That was taken, and it was sent to the lab, and there was indication that there was uh, uh, human DNA and uh, remains on there. Uh, he said his main uh, tool that he used were different sized axes to, to cut. And he pretty much told me his confession that it was a lot of work because he just hacked away. As they continued to uncover one incriminating detail after another, there was one Ruiz couldn't shake, 
the pecan shells found at the discovery sites. Ruiz said Bradley explained them during his confession. He said, yes, yeah, because uh, uh, he, he told me the first time I dumped some out, he goes, I had the box, which ties into the Acer, because I had the body parts in there. I, I, I threw it out, and I had actually been eating pecans, driving around town looking for a place to drop the body parts, and I was throwing the shells in the box. The arrest of James Patrick Bradley was on the evening news by Tuesday, February 21st, less than a week after the initial discovery of body parts was reported. And Patty Awayo joins us now from the central El Paso location with more. Patty? Gary, police continue to stand watch in front of the Bradley home here in the 5400 block of Olson Street. This is where the suspect allegedly shot and dismembered his wife. Police say the shooting occurred last Wednesday night at about 11 p.m. and News 7 has learned Bradley has confessed to police. Reporters were also uncovering conflicting stories about the Bradleys as a married couple from police, neighbors and friends. According to family members and friends, yes, they had a stormy relationship. I remember that they were real happy together and, you know, they really liked being with each other. Jennifer McCowan says she and Patrick Bradley, the victim's husband, used to talk about Volkswagens at length. But until today, she felt no connection with the crime. Kind of wondered where they'd leave the next parts. And uh, it's just totally obnoxious that I know these people. At the same time, the community was getting a better idea of Susie Hahn Bradley as a person. She had graduated from Las Cruces High School in 1979 and pursued her love of art, later attending New Mexico State University in Las Cruces and earning a bachelor's degree in fine arts in 1991. After marrying James Patrick Bradley, they lived in Oregon, New Mexico, but later the couple moved into her deceased grandfather's house in central El Paso. They were married for nearly three years and did not have children together. We spoke with the victim's family and they said they had not spoke to Han for about a week to 10 days, but they're saying that length of time is really nothing that they would call out of the ordinary, according to her father. Shelton, did the family make mention of any previous marital problems? Han's father did say that his daughter had made mention of what he called some very minor problems, but nothing that, that would cause any uh, does alarm or anything that would cause them to uh, further seek into her condition. But court records referenced in the ABC7 archive show Bradley had a criminal past. County records show he was charged with felony theft in 1987 and was sentenced to five years probation. But then things turned violent. A report by ABC7 after his murder arrest laid out more details. Bradley was arrested three separate times in the winter of 1989. 
The most serious was an aggravated assault charge stemming from a family fight with his former wife, Cassandra. The district attorney's office filed a motion to revoke his probation, but instead a judge placed him on intensive supervision in May 1990. However, by the following year, Samora says Bradley violated his probation three times again. Two incidents involved protective orders requested by his ex-wife and his own brother. Despite the violations, Bradley never served time in prison and he completed his probation in January 1993. Two years later, Bradley was facing life in prison for the murder of his wife. In November of 1995, nine months after the city was gripped with fear as police investigated who scattered body parts across town, James Patrick Bradley was going to trial. Local television cameras were allowed inside the courtroom to document parts of the trial. That's a rare move for El Paso judges. Using the outline of a body that was printed on a life-size white display board, El Paso District Attorney Jaime Esparza showed the jury how Susie's body was dismembered. Holding it upright with one hand, he pointed with the other to red lines on the outline to indicate where the cuts were made. But the, but the fingers in the left hand were all cut, the fingertips. That the right hand fingertips were cut. That the middle finger was cut twice. 21 body parts in all. The defense objected to this line of persuasion, saying Susie died after being shot six times in the chest, not from being mutilated. The judge overruled the objection. Bradley's defense didn't dispute the murder charge, but claimed self-defense. Uh, I was lying in bed and she came into the bedroom and hit me on the forehead with a flashlight. In his confession, Bradley told police they had had a violent fight. I then punched Susie on the nose as hard as I could. He said she told him she was going to call 911 on him, went to the bathroom to clean up. And I grabbed the 22 caliber rifle. I believe it was an old Remington automatic that I kept by my bedside. And when she emerged, he shot her. On February 15th, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence will show that this was the apex. This was the peak of the torment of the abuse, of the frustration and anger that Susie Bradley had in the crippled man she was married to. Bradley told police in his confession, which was admitted into evidence, that he was a victim of spousal abuse. The prosecution countered that argument, saying Bradley worked hard to cover up the murder. They pointed out one mistake one shred of evidence inside the Bradley house that tied him directly to the murder, a note found by his phone. Police say that note contained details of a cover story about how his wife supposedly left town with friends. Police say he kept the note handy to keep his facts straight with callers asking for his wife. Police had taken a picture of the note as evidence. I have a copy of it, which I obtained as part of an open records request to the police department. 
The handwritten note was scrawled in cursive with black ink on a small yellow memo pad. It says, quote, Morning of 16th, 9 o'clock, Susie left with James and Melissa to Riodoso, Hondo Valley, to sketch and do pastels. I worried they were due back Saturday night, 85-86 Chevy van, blue mag wheels. You can tell that Bradley emphasized the date, scribbling over it numerous times, and he did the same thing on the day Susie was due back in El Paso, writing Saturday over what he had previously written, which was Sunday. Hoping he could sway the jury, Bradley took the stand in his own defense and against his attorney's advice. Here's the news report summing up that part of the trial. District Attorney Jaime Esparza's biggest flow to the defense occurred during cross-examination of the defendant himself. For three hours, Esparza drilled James Patrick Bradley about contradicting statements, history of physical abuse with Bradley's first wife, and attempts to cover his tracks after the murder of his second wife, Susie. The jury found Bradley guilty of murder. The prosecution spoke to reporters once the case was concluded. I think the evidence was clear that there was, uh, that it wasn't a spontaneous act and that he knew what he was doing and it was calculated. And I think the jury's verdict says that. The defense attorney, Gary Hill, told reporters he had hoped the jury would convict Bradley of manslaughter, but felt that option vanished once his client took the stand. He also said Bradley regretted testifying. Every citizen accused, everyone who's accused of a crime, has a right to make that decision themselves. Uh, it was against my best judgment, but uh, he made that decision, and uh, I advised the court that I didn't agree with that, but I would go along with it. And so he took the stand, and I think uh, this is the result of that. The result? A murder conviction. And on that same day, the jury sentenced Bradley to life in prison. Records show in 1997, attorneys for James Patrick Bradley filed a motion with the Texas Court of Appeals to overturn his conviction, claiming the district court should not have allowed certain pieces of evidence at trial, including his confession to El Paso police, which they claimed was illegally obtained. But the motion was denied and his conviction was upheld. And in June 2012, ABC7 learned Bradley had applied for a medical release from prison. Michelle Bradley, a daughter from his first marriage, told ABC7 family and friends submitted letters to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice asking that his request be denied. Michelle wrote in her letter, quote, My father is a horrible person and has no business being let out. As far as I'm concerned, he can die alone in his desolate cave. Bradley's request for release was denied. 
According to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Bradley died on November 22, 2014, while incarcerated at the Michael Unit in Tennessee Colony, Texas. That's more than 100 miles southeast of Dallas. 25 years later, the murder and dismemberment of Susie Hahn Bradley is a case that has haunted now-retired Detective Turi Ruiz. I still, once in a while, still get those images that come across my head once in a while, sleep, wake up. Uh, it doesn't happen that often now since I retired, so it does help. It does help when you separate yourself from that. You do bring it home, it's sad. Uh, stuff like that stays with you. That's one thing I explain to people. We, we're not like computers, like phones. We don't have a delete button. And then it's gone forever. It, it, it doesn't work anymore. This case also marks a significant milestone in the relationship between El Paso police and local media and their willingness to work together outside of normal bounds to get to the bottom of a seemingly unsolvable crime. We've never had a request like that again, <laughs> and I'm aware of none, bef none before, none since. If you'd like to see some of the crime scene photos, including the news report that led to the police identifying Susie Hahn Bradley, you can find them at kvia.com. Thanks to former ABC7 anchor Gary Warner and retired police detective Turi Ruiz, who both had to dig deep into their memories for details of this awful crime, and who went along with the social distancing measures that made both of these interviews more physically challenging than most. And thanks to the El Paso Police Department, the El Paso District Attorney's Office, and the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for supplying data even while working from home. ABC 7's Borderland Crimes is a podcast produced, written, and edited by me, Stephanie Valle. Our production manager is Chris Swan. A special thanks to him for pouring over hours of 25-year-old video. Our special projects director is John McMinn. Leslie Engel is our content manager. And Brendan Dan the Swan is our news director. Stay tuned. Another episode of Borderland Crimes is coming soon.